Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of The Christian Skeptic. I am very pleased to be joined by a special guest. His name is Dominic Dunn, and uh, he is a pastor and author. He's written two books so far, I believe it's two, and Dominic can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the first one is When Faith Fails, and then the second one is Your Longing Has a Name. And like me, he has a passion for those that doubt and for doubt and for skepticism. Um, So without further ado, Dominic, welcome to The Christian Skeptic. Hey, so good to be on the show with you. Yeah, so give me and the audience, I guess, kind of an overview. I just gave you that introduction of your passion being similar to mine on skeptic, on doubt, on apologetics, even on philosophy. Uh, I was skimming through your your uh, second book, and I noticed you start off with a J.R.R. Tolkien reference, which is also okay. <laughs> another passion of mine, is nice. Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis. Uh, so yeah, kind of kind of give me that overview. What are you about for our listeners? Yeah, totally. Um, so we're, uh, currently we live in Colorado, uh, but our journey's taken us all over. Uh, been married for 22 years to my wonderful wife, Elisa. We have a 17-year-old daughter, uh, a golden doodle that's somewhere in the office here with me. And uh, I've served as a pastor um, in, in Hawaii. Uh, that was rough uh, <laughs> for eight years. <laughs> and then uh, we went out to Oxford. Uh, that's where I uh, did, did my, my study and research. And then from there to Portland, Oregon. And we lived there for almost a decade. And I pastored a church there called Westside, a Jesus church. And uh, then um, put on a book in 2019 called When Faith Fails, as you mentioned, which is all about doubt and deconstruction, which then led to um, the forming of a nonprofit organization that's called Pursuing Faith. Um, Our website's pursuingfaith.org. And uh, yeah, that's what we're focused on right now here in Colorado. And uh, it's been a it's been a wild, beautiful season. And as you mentioned, um, I have a huge heart for those who are struggling with faith, who are struggling with doubt. Part of the reason is personal. Um, as I share in my first book, there was a season in my life of pretty immense doubt, and I share what that looked like and kind of the deconstruction reconstruction process. Um, but then also pastoral. Uh, I think we live at a fascinating moment where you know it's James K. Smith said, we breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt right now. Um, In fact, an article came out this morning, um, a fascinating article, uh, talking about how the number of people who don't believe in God has risen to an all-time high in our nation. Uh, That number is just increasing. Um, People are leaving the faith. You go online, go on TikTok, go on Instagram, whatever, uh, hashtag deconstruction. And you see that this is a cultural movement right now. We live in a, as the Washington Post said a few months ago, we live in a skeptical age. And so our heart is to, to step into that space because I think in many ways, the church uh, has done a poor job of really laying a good foundation of a robust theology of doubt, what it looks like to, to grow in our faith, what to do with some of the thorny, gritty, raw uh, questions that people have. And one of the things I've, I've experienced, I'm sure you have as well, is that typically 
the way churches have responded to the doubt of the skeptic, the cynic, is either uh, by marginalizing them um, or by idolizing the doubts. Um, and so, you know, with the, mm. the idolizing doubt, you kind of move more into the progressive liberal forms of Christianity where you throw out doctrines. Um, it, it, but then to demonize the doubter is, is where you're not giving the doubter, the skeptic, the cynic, a safe space to process. And I, and I think there is a healthy middle ground that is actually biblical. <laughs> um, you see from Genesis to Revelation, um, God giving space to those who have questions. In fact, God actually encouraging people to ask questions. Come let us reason together, right? Um, the way Jesus led his disciples was by the asking of questions and inviting them to open up within their own assumptions. And so our ministry is really uh, based on helping people move through seasons of doubt uh, to flourish in their faith. And what that looks like for us is putting on conferences. In fact, we just got back from Oregon doing a conference down there, um, speaking universities, speaking in churches, uh, digital content, things like this, um, writing books, et cetera. And uh, yeah, we, we've just been doing it almost a year now. I say we, it's my wife and I kind of just uh, <laughs> doing this together at the, at the time. Hopefully we can expand that. Um, but it's just been beautiful, overwhelming. Uh, our awareness of the the challenges of this cultural moment have really grown. Um, I, I think that we're much more precarious times than many people even realize. And yet within the secular space, I think there's cracks in, in, in secularism where, where the, the beauty and hope of the gospel can thrive and flourish. So I'm hopeful for the future, but also very realistic of, of what is actually happening right now in our nation. Well, fair enough. I mean, I guess if you're not hopeful for the future, that's that's a horrible, horrible place to be. But to that note, and and I've noticed a theme, I guess, in in your your two books, and that is, um, when someone looks at the topics of your two books, the first being skepticism, doubt, and then the second one, uh, which I want to spend a good amount of time talking about your second one today, your second one kind of has a focus on. I mean, not kind of, it does have a focus on the soul and the health of mm -hmm. the soul. And with yep. that comes kind of a mental health and emotional health, a spiritual health. Mm -hmm. And so I want to get to that here in a second, but on the skepticism, the doubting, and you mentioned that churches can swing to extremes of say, well, no, mm -hmm. don't doubt, like just have faith, just pray for more faith. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the one extreme. And then your questions never get answered. And then there's the other extreme where it's like, well, okay, maybe maybe your thought is valid too. And maybe we can just add that to our theology or maybe we can just ignore that and say, you live part of your truth. As long as we all sing a song about Jesus in the end, we're all good. <laughs> what advice do you have to someone who finds themselves in a church where their doubts aren't being addressed? What should they do? Should they leave the church? Should they deconstruct their faith? I know you went through a period of deconstructing your faith as, oh my gosh, a pastor, <laughs> can that happen? Right. But, but what, what advice do you have to someone who maybe doesn't have access to conferences, maybe doesn't have access to, um, a, a pastor or mentor, they can sit down and shoot their questions off at. 
Yeah. So uh, what I do in, in the first book is the the second or, or the last third, I should say, of the book is tackling those kinds of questions directly. Um, I think it's one of the most challenging spaces to be in if you're a part of a community that isn't giving you space to process. Um, and there are, let's face it, I mean, there are churches like that. You show up to church and you're expected to just put on the happy face and uh you know, it's all good. And I call it the Lego gospel. You know, everything is awesome. Um, and, and, and yet you leave from there and none of your result, uh, doubts or questions have been resolved or addressed or even acknowledged. Um, when you're in that space, it's really difficult because I don't recommend necessarily church hopping. I don't recommend just like departing or leaving from the church. However, on the other hand, if you're in a, a place that's not causing your soul to flourish, uh, if you're not finding true community, then yeah, I think it's time at that point to ask some more difficult questions. Like, where can I flourish? Where where can my soul encounter uh, the, the living God? Where can my faith grow? Um, church is always... And you, you've been a pastor. I've been a pastor. We all know church is a beautiful mess, <laughs> and um, <laughs> there's it, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be ideal. Um, where I would recommend uh, is sit down with the leadership. You know, if you have mm. if it's a larger church, you know, grab one of the pastors on staff. If it's a smaller church, meet you know meet with the senior pastor and just share your heart. Say this is what I'm going through, and. Um, do you have any advice? What do you recommend? And it could be that the church maybe has some programs built around this or, you know, small groups. I think small groups are so key because it's there that we can just be honest and truthful. This is what I'm going through. When you're part of a larger community, it's so easy just to slip in the back and be unnoticed and, and, and then leave uh, and never really have your life changed. Um, I, I think it's in you know those places of of true community that uh, we can encounter healing. You know, Anne Lamott, she has this uh, beautiful illustration of uh, in the ancient world. I think it was in Asia where they had these earthen vessels, and when an earthen vessel cracked, rather than throwing it away, what they would often do is adorn the crack or cover the crack with a very thin kind of papery gold leaf and they would set it back on the shelf and it wasn't done to hide the crack but rather to draw attention to it to say hey this brokenness is actually beautiful <laughs> um, this brokenness has a place of belonging in our house and I think that's what church should look like uh, it's a place where we come with our wounds our brokenness our doubts and we find not uh, harsh cynicism or those who push us to the margins, but rather acceptance, grace, love, as Jude verse 22 says, which is one of my favorite verses when it comes to this conversation, uh, show mercy to those who doubt. Um, the word mercy there is actually this beautiful word picture of a physician mending a broken bone. Um, and I think that should be the posture of the church towards those who are doubting, deconstructing, show mercy, uh, because oftentimes, and this is actually what led to the writing of the second book, what I've discovered is that when someone is doubting their faith or deconstructing, sometimes it's a philosophical question, sometimes it's theological. Most of the time, there's some deeper soul level trauma that is unresolved. 
And after working the space, you know, especially over the last couple of years, and it's a pastor in Portland, um, I've come to discover, yeah, there, there's space for, let's have the apologetic, you know, conversations. And why did, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Or how about theodicy? Or, you know, what do we do with the weird parts of the Bible? Absolutely. We need to be talking about that. But most of the time, the reason people will leave or depart is because there's something going on in the inner places of their soul. And uh, what I do in the second book then is say, okay, let's talk about the soul. You know, let's talk about faith. How can our soul flourish? What does it mean to grow in our faith? In some ways, the second book is more proactive to help to help us not to get to the place of active deconstruction, leaving the church. Because I think if our soul is in a healthy place, it really gives us the tools and resources to know how to navigate those inevitable seasons of doubt that come our way. Very well put. Um, you touched on a few things. I, I don't think we have time to get to everything you touched on here. Um, but there's a couple things I noticed uh, that you were saying, and this even ties into kind of towards the end of your second book, you talk about friendships and cultivating healthy friendships as a Christian and really just as a an exercise that's healthy for your soul. And again, that's that mental, emotional, spiritual space. I think for and for the doubting person, and then we can leave the doubting and go onto the soul conversation, but I think for the doubting person, what I've discovered in my seasons of doubt is it's often safest, and the Bible says this, there's safety in the multitude of counselors, right? But it's often safest to try to befriend that pastor that will wrestle through things with you, or it doesn't have to be a mm. pastor, maybe a spiritual leader, mentor, someone. Mm. But I think the person that's safest to befriend is the person on enough, uh, honest enough to say the words I and odd know. enough. Yeah, odd enough and honest <laughs> enough. That's true. <laughs> but honest enough to say the words I don't know. You know, it, it's the kind of person that isn't going to throw an answer at you for every single question because at the end of the day, we're always going to doubt something. We're always going to mm. be skeptical about something. We can't know mm -hmm. the answers to everything. And so that's mm. why and I don't want to beat a dead horse on this and on this show, but that's why every belief it requires faith. You know, there's nothing that'll mm -hmm. prove atheism. There's nothing that'll prove Christianity. There's nothing that'll prove Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. Nothing can be proven. We don't know everything about everything. And so at the end of the day, there's something that requires faith. And the person yeah. safe enough to talk about it with is the person that will say, I don't know, to some other questions. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. I think those are some of the most liberating words yeah. <laughs> that we could ever utter. Um, because faith, when you think about it, isn't certainty. It's not having all the answers. It's what we do with the questions we have. It's it's about the the gritty places, the the raw tension of of trust, right? It's like any relationship. I've been married to my wife 22 years. I know a lot about her. Um but there are still times when she surprises me. She'll say something like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming or <laughs> hear a story from her past. Like, oh, that's new or see her respond to a situation in a certain way. And the fact that there are still questions aching to be asked or mysteries that are lingering, uh, I think is a good sign. It's, it's a sign of a relationship that's moving forward. Relationships are journey, they're mystery. Um, it, it's the unexplored places and those, those conversations that you didn't see coming that often draw you together in, in, in beautiful ways. And I, I think God, in a sense, has kind of rigged the world 
um, in, in such a way where mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. Uh, we see this from Genesis 1, right? God creates a world with boundaries and barriers. He then makes us very curious. <laughs> he, he puts us, a timeless God makes a world bound by the limits of time. A, you know, a limitless God makes a world that's limited with the boundaries of, of space matter. Um, and then he makes us limited as well, uh, intellectually and physically in so many ways. Um, but he gives us this drive. He gives us this thirst. He gives us curiosity. And uh, from Genesis 1 on, God invites us into that. It's why Jacob, who became Israel, wrestled with God. It's why in Deuteronomy, God told the children of Israel, hey, when your kids ask you these questions, you know, have, have dialogue with them. He doesn't say, shut them up. You know, kids should be seen, not heard as the Victorian <laughs> said. He says, no, I engage with them, right? Um, again, it's why Jesus led uh, through th this art of, of wrestling with his disciples. And um, this is what God has called us to as well. It's in those places of of trying to understand, trying to seek, trying to know, but also realizing, yeah, I don't know. There's a bucket in my brain that just says, I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> I have to throw things in there because we see through a glass dimly right now. Um, but someday, hopefully, right? Face to face, as, as Paul said, there's a great book called uh, by, by Christopher Wright called The God I Don't Understand. I just, I love that title. And uh, he, he's a theologian uh, in, in England, and he basically goes through in this book, like, here's what I don't get about God. Here's what I don't understand about the Bible, but here's why I still believe. I think that's what faith looks like. Very well said. Um, to that point, you bring up, you bring up so much, and it's, it's overwhelming, right? The, this, this idea, and even going back to Genesis, like you're referencing, there's this idea of the garden in Genesis, and then sin enters the world, and the thorn and the thistle enter as well. And there's this idea of the desert. And when I think of a garden, and this is a segue into um, your longing has a name, when I think of the garden, I think of flourishing. Mm -hmm. And when I think That's of the right. desert, I don't think of flourishing. I think of mm -hmm. drought. I think of thirst. I think of missing something, having an emptiness. And so... I think in, I don't just think, I, I guess I know through experience and, and through walking with others on this, but in church, often we feel like there's something missing. In our Christian life, often we feel like we're in a desert trying to find God, struggling to get some kind of refreshment for our soul, mm -hmm. and we're not flourishing in a garden, right? I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially today, anxiety, depression, everything is just crazy out of control. Mental health mm -hmm. um, is is a serious topic and serious conversation we need to have because we're on the cusp if we're not already in a mental health epidemic in this country. Mm -hmm. What is flourishing? How, how can a soul flourish? Man, that, that's the question right there. Um, you mentioned <laughs> Tolkien at the, the beginning of our conversation and um, we, were, we were just in Oxford uh, last week, which was awesome. We got to Oh, uh, wow. Go to the Eagle and Child. There's the pub there where Lewis and Tolkien met. And um, it, it, the whole place is just the fingerprints of those thinkers and authors are are everywhere. And, um, you know, there's this quote by Tolkien where he said that we all long for Eden. We're constantly glimpsing it. And our whole nature at its best and least corrupted 
is still soaked with the sense of exile. <laughs> and that, that really kind of ties into what you're saying, that we were created in a garden. When you think of a garden, you think of flourishing, but then senators, the world, Genesis three, we kind of live in a desert or John, John Steinbeck. He said that we live East of Eden right now. And, and there is this fascinating paradox um, to our existence where on one hand, especially, you know, over the last few years, it's been mental health, as you mentioned, uh, the loss of loved ones, um, you know, the pent up grief, uh, the New York Times said that the emotional state of our of our nation right now is a languishing. Uh, this was an mm. article that came out late last year. Um, the great malady, as Thomas More said, of the modern age is loss of soul. So we're, we're in this interesting moment where we're not flourishing, <laughs> and yet we long to. Uh, there's a yearning in us, in a sense, to return to the garden, right? To experience that closeness and relationship with God. And what led me to write the second book was um, th there, there was a sense of like, okay, doubt deconstruction, moving people to, towards deeper faith. But it was also, again, deeply personal. Uh, my family and I went through a fascinating, difficult season the last couple of years of losing some loved ones. A year ago, actually, my wife, uh, she had this spontaneous lung collapse, ended her mm. up in the hospital for a few weeks. And fortunately, you know, she began to recover, but it, that was pretty traumatic. And just a number of things, I, and I share it in chapter one of what we walk through. And in that season um, of grief and a lot of confusion, I, I remember just, yeah, there were late nights, sleepless nights, wrestling with God, and I just began to ask the question, okay, Lord, you promised the abundant life. Jesus, you said we can have rest for our soul. Psalm 1 describes a tree planted by the rivers of living water that flourishes. Genesis 1, the garden. Revelation describes the garden reborn, right? So we see this beautiful vision for flourishing that's laid out in scripture. You, you see these beautiful Hebrew words, shalom or tamim or ashray, that all are connected deeply to this idea of flourishing. But what does that look like in the midst of hard times? Now, the way that prosperity preachers would answer that question <laughs> is like flourishing is, you know, it, it's material success. Um, and culture says this the same, this, the same, says the same thing that it's all about how much money you have or a new house or a new spouse or whatever, uh, which is a very <laughs> Aristotle kind of way of looking at flourishing. Aristotle had this idea of eudaimonia, which essentially means the good life, um, that we can attain the good life through external pursuits of, of certain things and, and the virtues as he defined them. But in scripture, um, we, we see a different definition of flourishing that Flourishing can actually occur in the midst of heartache. Flourishing can occur in the midst of pain. There is rest for our soul, Psalm 23, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So it must mean something different than what culture defines it as. And, and essentially, and, and I do this in the first couple of chapters, uh, flourishing is participation in the life of God. It's finding our hope, our satisfaction, our identity in him. Flourishing is living like Jesus, essentially. It's so much more than, as culture defines it, self-focused feelings, UBU slogans, trying to make your wildest dreams come true. Uh, it, it's knowing and being known by God. And, and so 
I lay that that out in the first few chapters, and then the the following seven, I then give a kind of a roadmap uh, towards that kind of life, and and that's where I draw from Second Peter. Yeah, and there's a there's a tension there. There's a felt tension mm-hmm. there, especially in this idea, which isn't a new idea at all. It's it's the age old idea of Christianity to yeah. know Christ, to follow Christ, but unfortunately from a, a secular perspective that comes with a denial of oneself denial of one's desire and a that's turning right. from sin and that's not popular at all and in your book you have a chapter on confronting the shadow mm. and i notice in culture it's being popularized by the psychologist jordan peterson but carl Jung has this idea mm-hmm. of integrating the shadow into your life mm-hmm. and so your chapter on confronting the shadow and the way you phrased it definitely caught my eye knowing mm-hmm. that our culture is kind of playing with a shadow and there's one side of it where you have the the union perspective of integrating your shadow and mm-hmm. harnessing its energy which is similar to kind of what you lay out in your mm-hmm. book in that there's a redemption that should come from that. So I want to mm-hmm. ask you about that. But then there's the flip side of it where culture says, uh, which is more of a nihilistic point of view, right? That your shadow is as much a part of you right. as all the good things are. And so that's, I think, where we get this kind of identity crisis now where it's like, okay, what is actually true? Who, who am I? How do I construct my identity? Do I construct it by integrating the shadow and... Mm-hmm kind of redeeming the, I, I don't want to use the word energy, but, but it is like a, 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 in mm-hmm. a sense of felt energy because there's emotion and there's, um, there, there's, there's feelings that come out of the desires of the shadow, right? And, mm-hmm. and so there's a way to integrate that, which I think is healthy somehow. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. a way to become the shadow, I guess, as it were, and to say, right. well, no, your shadow desires are who you are, identify mm-hmm. that way. How do you yeah. wrestle with that tension? Boy, that I love that you asked that question. It's so so awesome. Yeah, Carl Jung, he's a he's a fascinating thinker. Um, what 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 I do in that chapter towards the end is that yeah, there there is some overlap with with some of his ideas. Um, but I, I I go further back than Carl Jung uh, to the rabbis because the rabbis um, they they argued that. There are two impulses in every human heart, which they call the Yetzer Hatov, which means the good, or and the Yetzer Hara, which is the bad. And you use the word energy. They they actually saw both sides as um, kind of a force and energy that could be redeemed, that could be harnessed uh, for good. And even the Yetzer Hara uh, had potential to be used for the good. C.S. Lewis picks up on this too, where he talks about every vice is often a virtue gone wrong. <laughs> so I use the example of like, okay, we have the Yetzer Hurrah, the, you know, the vice of selfishness. Well, what does that look like when it's redeemed? You know, when it's brought to the feet of Jesus? Um, well, selfishness can then be used for creative causes or building a home or starting a business um, or the impulse towards greed, which you know, once redeemed could then be used towards, okay, I'm going to make some wise financial decisions or investments or save money or whatever, a passion, uh, th- that impulse can be twisted and lead to, to lust and, and dark things, or can actually be used to, to lead you towards falling in love and nurturing a family and being committed to your spouse. And, and so this, this idea that the rabbis had, and I, I wonder if Carl Jung actually is picking up on this concept when he, when he talks about, you know, a shadow self, um, I think there's something to that that is worth consideration. And that's why I had that section in that chapter, because um, 
when God redeems us, you think about the phrase self-control and and it's in that chapter on self-control, redeeming our shadow side. Um, The way it's framed oftentimes in church settings is it's denial of self equals uh, rejection of your story. (laughs) And that's not always the case. Uh, Yes, we're called to die to self. Absolutely. These impulses within us are to be crucified with Christ, as, as Paul said. But we also have a story. We have a past. We have things we've gone through. We have mistakes that were made. And part, and part of the beauty of the gospel is he calls us uh, not to sweep them under the rug, but actually to expose them for our healing and for the healing of others. Like God's intent isn't to airbrush the imperfections out of our life, but rather to beautify them with forgiveness and grace. This is why the Bible is so ruthlessly honest about the lives of its heroes and anti-heroes, um, <laughs> the, the mistakes they made, the things they did, the catastrophic impulses that they had that led to all kinds of dark places. David, who wrote the book of Psalms, had an interesting past. Um, Peter uh, denied Christ. The Bible's very honest about this. It doesn't sweep them under the rug, but rather it says this is their story, but here's how resurrection brought beauty to it. And I, and I believe that redemption means that every part of our story, the victory, the defeat, the laughter, the horror, the joy, the sorrow, all of it is teeming with, with possibility. Um, and so every shadow in our life, here's an interesting thought experiment. Every shadow in our life is pointing to a substance. The dark places of our life, yetz or hara, it's pointing to a reality in our soul that denial of it is is part of the process sure but to heal from it means i need to ask what is that shadow pointing to what is the substance that it's trying to expose in me and and that's where you do the deeper work <laughs> that can actually lead to a very wholesome redemptive place yeah and that's that's not easy by by oh, any gosh, means no. to uncover and confront the shadow uh, w- w- within us. And you know, even as you mentioned, the, uh, the dual nature that the rabbis point out, I think of the Native Americans had a similar thing as well. And mm. so there's something universal about this because uh, they had the, um, and I don't know which tribe exactly, so forgive me for not having that <laughs> exactly down, but there, there's the old story of the two wolves, that there's two wolves warring within us, right? And I think it's more mm. about a fear and a courage wolf and whichever one you feed the most is the one that wins. And so mm. there is something universal that's not just Christian about the shadow self. There's something universal about this idea of a, and it's not dualism by any means, but, mm-hmm. but there's a, a tension and a conflict within us. And so so that's not easy, right? And, and even going back to the Native American uh, legend, it's the one you feed the most that wins. And your mm-hmm. very next chapter is on thought patterns and thought life. And I feel like that's even harder than confronting the shadow is to, oh my goodness. To, yeah. to set your thoughts in order and to set your thoughts properly, especially in this day and age uh, where all the information in the world comes at us um, in the little phones we carry in our pockets and, and there's no mm-hmm. filter, there's no control on any of it. Um, let's talk about that. What does that actually mean to <sighs> take control of your thoughts and to set them on heavenly things, as the Bible would say. Yeah, wow, that that's such a relevant question. You mentioned our phones. Um, it's crazy how 
they control our life right now. This morning, I went down to the gym in between podcasts and stuff, and I came across this video uh, on YouTube that said, is TikTok ruining our brains? Um, <laughs> essentially, the answer is yes. I mean, on average, Americans look at their phones uh, over four hours a day. Uh, every Sunday, it's, always, it's interesting to me that every Sunday morning, our iPhones give us the report of uh, how you get that report, the weekly thing of uh, this is how many hours you've looked at your iPhone this week and it's gone up. I've started turning that report off. Actually, oh, I, I keep it on just because <laughs> it always coincides with church, which I just find it's like, perfect. Okay. It, it, here's an opportunity for us to reorient our minds back on Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's insane. I mean, we over almost 3000 times a day, we were either typing, swapping, uh, swiping, clicking, whatever. And our brains in a sense have been Google because we think that we're acquiring more knowledge and in, in a sense, sure, there's access to it, but it actually comes with a cost. Um, there's a cognitive psychologist, Daniel Levitin, who's written a whole book on this and tons of research. And he talks about the processing capacity of the conscious mind. And uh, he actually puts it in like computer terms that our processing capacity is 120 bits per second. But when you have a conversation hmm. with someone like we're doing right now, that takes up about 60 bits per second. So already half of our brain is like, you know, focus on this, which, you know, gives us other part of our brain to do other things, multitasking. Now, if you're a guy, uh, at least for me, um, the processing capacity, I don't know. I, it's so hard for me to multitask. My wife amazes me. She can do like four things at once, but on average, <laughs> you know, 120 bits per second, which means David Levinton goes on to say that every meeting we participate in, every tweet, every message, every comment, every like is contending for limited resources in our brain. There's been studies done on what they call Zoom fatigue, because you're not just having one conversation when you're in a Zoom meeting, you have, you're like 30 faces you know, in front of you. It's like your brain is constantly trying to take all of this in. And when you're done, you're, you're exhausted. And it's not good. You know, uh, Kierkegaard, he once said that the saint is one who wills the one thing. Uh, David, you know, he said, one thing I've desired, one thing I, I seek after. And for me personally, I'm trying to re-harness, recapture, learn the art of the one thing. Um, there's this temptation to just be so distracted, so divided, multitasking everything so we're going pretty wide but we're not going very deep and i think part of the process of of reorienting our thought life around this ancient word godliness uh, which in scripture is actually used to describe the patterns of our thought um begins by saying okay what what can i eliminate from my life how, how can i blocks in my life this is real practical how can i blocks in my life where this is the one thing i'm doing right? I'm reading a book. So my phone's going over here or I'm with the family. So I'm not checking email. Like what does it look like to be more present, more here, uh, to allow our brains in a sense to, to reset, to rewire some of the neurons that maybe have been Googled. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's great peace in that. We, again, we're meant for a garden. You think about the beauty of a garden, the simplicity of a garden, the, the intimacy of walking with God in the cool of the day. Um, that's what our souls long for. And, uh, for our brains that are just fried right now with an overload of information, which 
it's been shown to lead to rises of anxiety, depression, et cetera, uh, mental health issues. Um, so how do, how do I get back to the one thing? What, what do I need to excise from my life, right? And this is a radical idea, radical, the root of radical, by the way, means root, uh, root. it's getting to the, the source, the one thing that can bring healing. Hmm. Um, so that, that's actually what I've been pondering the last couple of days. And <laughs> I do have a chapter on the thought, on our thought life, uh, bringing every thought captive to obedience in Christ. There is a ton in that simple verse that I think is beyond relevant for where we're at as a culture right now. Yeah, definitely. And it's a fascinating chapter because it's a fascinating idea. And I like that you bring up practical steps because, I mean, that's all we got sometimes to work with. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's that looking around and saying, at least for me, there's there's kind of this realization where you just kind of take inventory. Um, and it might just be because my mind's a little more on the engineering side and I'm a little more analytical, but it's it's like you have to just look at your calendar and say, okay, where can I set aside 10 minutes this morning, right? Where can I set aside mm-hmm. a certain amount of time? And if you create a pattern of just saying, okay, I'm going to set aside some time, like, like you just said, put the phone down, maybe read a book, maybe read a chapter or a page to start off with, right? There's these practical steps you can take. Mm-hmm. But there is the phenomenological as well that we can't we can't deny, right? And that's that's that part where Jesus says, "Seek and you'll find; knock and it will be open to you," right? Um, because I think the reality is, and, and I don't know that it's being created more and more in our day and age by the technology and the distractions. I think it might just be realized more in our day and age. Cause, and then that's that's the reality that our brains don't want to focus on the spiritual. Our brains don't want to walk with God in the garden and that's part of our nature and there's nothing wrong with asking for help with Mm -hmm. that. And so again, we are touching the phenomenological side of things. Um, but I think it's important to realize that that's there. And if we're talking about the soul, we have to talk about phenomenology because there's, there's a spiritual aspect that's a part of that. And that spiritual aspect is that relational aspect with the God of the universe, with the God that wants to lead you to a place of flourishing, even if it's not till the end, like the J.R.R. Tolkien metaphor you open up with, with the tree and realizing mm-hmm. what it looks like in the end. Um, and we're almost out of time, but I do want to touch on another chapter that really stuck out to me and is kind of along that thread. And that's the one on friendships and mm-hmm. cultivating healthy friendships, because I feel like I'm so happy you put that in your book. Number one, because that is on this train of thought with social media, with the information, that's the thing I feel like we're losing in our day and age. And, and especially the common person, we're so logged in and connected on social media that we're disconnected with others in our life. And so, I mean, personally, a little fun fact about me, I like to go sit at coffee shops downtown and read books. And sometimes I'll just start conversations with whoever's sitting next to me. And I notice when I do that, whoever is I'm starting the conversation with is just thrilled to talk to me about whatever, because you're talking to another person. Um, and so for anyone listening that wants to know how to share Jesus, well, that's, that's a pretty easy way to do it because we're so disconnected. Right. So, yeah. so talk to me now about the importance then of, of friendships, of cultivating healthy friendships. And what are some key aspects that make friendships actually healthy? Because I think there's oh, also a lot yeah. of unhealthy friendships in our day and age too. That's so true. <laughs> oh man. Well, I, I think this is the great crisis. Um, it's fascinating timing you'd ask that too, because uh, I was listening to a podcast today, this morning, 
after the TikTok one, uh, saying that 30% of Americans don't have a single friend, 30%. Wow. Um, and then another stat came out a few months ago, 67% of Americans say that they're lonely, um, mm. which again, the paradox of we're more connected than ever. We can tweet and uh, go online, social media and message and all that. But we see a lot of faces, but we, we don't, we're not having that soul level connection. Um, you know, it's interesting that, that the word friendship comes from two ancient words, freo, which means free and freon, which means love. Um, hmm. So friendship then is one who loves freely uh, or in the Celtic tradition, you know, they, they had this beautiful term, uh, anamkara, which means soul friend. And it's how you describe someone who gave you affectionate space to honestly confess and uncover the secrets of your heart. Um, in Second Peter 1, when Peter is giving us a roadmap towards the flourishing life, he says, add to your faith mutual affection. Um, mutual affection, I, that, that's fine, but the literal translation is friendship. Um, it's this word Philadelphia, which is where we get Philadelphia from, which is city of brotherly love. Um, it, it simply means friendship. That's what they uh, used in the ancient world. He's saying, add this to your faith because you, you need the affection of others because it's going to bring a vulnerability, a depth um, that will build your faith. It's going to bolster your courage. It's going to break down the walls in your life to help you deal with some of the shadow parts. Um, <laughs> friendships are like a mirror. They're going to help you see things about yourself that maybe you didn't see on your own. Uh, they have an ability to draw things out of us that we didn't even know were there. Um, in fact, in Old English, so we've gone from the Celtic language to Old English, uh, their word for friend was kith, which means knowledge communicated. Um, hmm. So it's not just the knowledge that we reveal about ourselves that makes a friendship thrive. It's the knowledge that friends reveal to us. Uh, they, they give us uh, really glimpses of, of God because we're all made in his image. And um, we need friends if, if we're going to flourish, if we're going to thrive, if we're going to grow, if we're going to become the people God's called us to be, if our soul is, is going to, to be what God, his vision for it is, uh, this is something we cannot do alone. It's why Ecclesiastes, it says two are one, <laughs> because uh, if one fall down, uh, he's not getting back up on his own. Um, I actually share a story for like scuba diving in that chapter and um, all, basically passing out at 130 feet. I got uh narcosis which is a buildup mm. of nitrogen in the blood which basically uh can kill you if you're not careful uh for some people it like makes them high <laughs> that wasn't my experience <laughs> for other people it's like having the worst panic attack of your life um, and then other people just kind of pass out and that's what happened to me and because in diving you are always told to dive with someone you always need a dive buddy it's like one of the cardinal rules of scuba diving um because my, my dive buddy happened to be there, he sees the eyes roll back in my head at 130 feet down. <laughs> He's able to grab me, take me up to the surface, you know, basically save my life. And in this moment where we find ourselves in the depths of grief, of political unrest, of deconstruction, of, you know, financial struggles, of you name it, emotional, mental health, 
we need others who can grab us by the shoulders and say, I'm here with you. I'm for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to walk with you through this. We need friends who aren't just there to here's 10 Bible verses or, you know, here's, <laughs> you know, what you should be doing is going to hit us over the head. We need friends who just are going to be with us through the lament, through the pain, through the heartache. And um, again, this ties back into like why, why church can be so beautiful and finding the right community, because there are people out there, who can be our soul friend, our Anam Kara. And for those who have that, man, what a gift, man. Uh, it's from the Lord and something to cultivate like a garden in your soul. For those who don't have that, those friends are out there, but it does require some effort from us. He who wants friends must be friendly. <laughs> the book of Proverbs <laughs> says sometimes there, there is that hard work of, of cultivating, uh, spending time, you know, the currency of friendship is time. So uh, this, I believe, is one of the vital ways that that our soul can flourish in, in these fascinating days we live in. Absolutely. I, I've never heard the Celtic uh, tradition calling friendship a, a knowledge share, but I love that. And and then as you shared the metaphor of scuba diving, it kind of painted this this image in my mind of everything we've been talking about thus far of so often we find ourselves in this culture, in that sea of social media, in that sea mm -hmm. of these things that if you just stare at them long enough, they will just make you drown in anxiety, right? And it's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, what's the anxiety? Well, the anxiety is I'm in my own head saying mm -hmm. things that are giving me the worry, right? I'm in my own head saying things that are making me feel worthless or out of control or like the world is crumbling down around me. And it doesn't have to be this complex crazy thing, but sometimes just listening to someone else puts another yeah. voice in your head. And it, it's almost like it can pull you up if you're drowning in the wrong area of the ocean, <laughs> like you were oh, with your scuba diving I, metaphor, right? Because that's absolutely. that's just what it is. For for those of us that, that, that do have those really deep friendships, you know half of that friendship is listening, right? Mm -hmm. And so for those looking for that, it's it's like part of it is if you just want to be a good friend, be a good listener, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, there's a Norwegian writer, um, her name's Arne Garborg, and she's credited with this. I think it's one of the most beautiful quotes on friendship. She said, to love a person is to learn the song that is in their heart and to sing it to them when they have forgotten. Um, mm. And, and that, that's how we know who our true friends are, because anyone can be there for us in our success. Um, but a true friend will step up in our ruin. <laughs> um, when we stumble, when we mess up. You look around, like who's there for you? Whose hand is reaching out to raise you to your feet? Um, because true friends, are, they're not just going to point out your failure, but they'll actually stoop down uh, to, to redeem it. And so part of the art of cultivating friendship is not just, okay, who, who's there for me, but how can I be there for others? Um, you know, friendship is about the flourishing of this mutual give and take, the flourishing of another person's soul. And our soul in the process comes alive. Yeah, definitely. And even in today's day and age, sometimes friendship is just knowing how to be there for someone in their success, especially yeah. in the hyper social media, Insta perfect world that we live in. Um, you don't want to set yourself around people that are envious of your success. You want to set yourself around people that celebrate your success as much as they are there for you and your failures. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. Good conversation though. Man, love it. I love what you're doing. I love the way you think. I love the questions you ask. So it was great, man. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, is there anything else you have coming up that you want our listeners to be aware of? I know you were talking about the project you and your wife are working on. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, our website, pursuingfaith.org. And on there, uh, we have a, a link where it kind of shows what we're doing, some of the conferences and uh, speaking events that are coming up. And um, yeah, if people want to reach out, questions, uh, if people want to check out the podcast, all of that stuff is is available on that website. Or, you know, speaking of social media, I'm on Instagram and all that at Dominic Doan. That's awesome. Yeah, you're coming to my town uh, here yeah. probably before this episode is even going to be released. I'm excited to, to go hear your speech. So if you want to hear Dominic's speech, check out the website. Um, Dominic, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. Um, and as always, hope you enjoy it. <laughs>